10. We're going to read from the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1. We'll put it up on the board as well. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Tamar, uh, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Azza, Azza begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiod begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Aliod, Eliod begot Elazar, Elazar begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now from the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being roused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took, him, took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn, and he called his name Yeshua, Jesus. May the Lord add to the reading of his word. Brief introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is, I believe, the first Gospel written. I believe in the early writing of the Gospels, so probably within 10 to 15 years of the uh, resurrection of Jesus. No doubt there was already a collection of writings about Jesus. Um, one commentator I found said that Matthew himself was a tax collector and would have had skilled in speed writing and possibly could have been writing down some of the sayings of Jesus as he was speaking them. Uh, we know he was a tax collector, of course, a disciple of Jesus. And there's also a tradition in the early church that the Gospel of Matthew was first written in Hebrew. Uh, Matthew Papias, one of the church fathers, wrote in 120 AD, Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord in the Hebrew language 
and each one interpreted them as best he could. And Jerome, who translated the uh, Bible into Latin, traveled to Israel, the Holy Land, in around 300 AD, and he wrote, Matthew, who is also Levi, and who from a publican came to be an apostle, first of all composed a gospel of Christ in Judea, in the Hebrew language, and characters for the benefit of those of the circumcision who had believed. Who translated after that into Greek is not sufficiently ascertained. Moreover, the Hebrew is preserved to this day in the library at Caesarea, with the, which the martyr Pamphilius so diligently collected. I was allowed by the Nazarenes who used this volume in Syria, city of Berea, to copy it. That's Jerome writing in 328 AD. Now, of course, if you can find the Hebrew uh, Gospel of Matthew, you'll have found gold in terms of this because it's never been found. Uh, there is a medieval copy, which is probably a forgery, but we don't have any Matthew, Hebrew Matthew in manuscript form. But you can tell from the book of, he of Matthew that it's very much Hebrew in tone. Look at the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I've got a, I have got a Hebrew translation of the New Testament, which was done by a man called Dedich in the 19th century. And that in Hebrew reads, Zesefer toldot Yeshua HaMashiach ben David ben Avraham. You actually couldn't get a much more Jewish statement than that. It puts Jesus absolutely in the Jewish tradition of the Sefer, the book, the book of the scroll, of the Toldot, which is the, means the history or the generations of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Qualifications to be the Messiah, he has to be descended from David, son of David, and his credentials as a Jewish man goes back to Abraham. <clears throat> and this is the book which tells you all about Jesus the Messiah. We read through the genealogies, managed to struggle through all those names without stumbling too much. But the genealogies are important. They're there for a purpose. And they, they tell you something about Jesus as he is descended from David, legitimately, son of Abraham. And Matthew introduces the subject of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, in this verse, in this verse which sets the tone really for the whole of the New Testament. And when you look at not just Matthew's Gospel, the whole of the New Testament. Ask yourself the question, who is the main man in Christianity? Obviously, it's Jesus Christ. Which is the main book in Christianity? Obviously, the New Testament. What does the New Testament do? It tells you all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. New Testament goes on from the first verse in Matthew right through to Revelation 22 to tell you about Jesus. Revelation 22, the last verse of the Bible says... He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And the Gospels tell you about Jesus, where he, how he was born, how he lived, how he died, and rose again from the dead. Where he came from, where he went while he was on earth, who his friends were, who his enemies were, what he taught. It's all about Jesus. You want to know about what Jesus, how his message was spread? You go to the book of Acts. Acts tells you how his disciples spread the message after he ascended into heaven. About how the apostles, it's about the apostles, but really about what the apostles said about Jesus. And what they had to say about how to become friends of Jesus by believing the gospel. Go on to the epistles. About how the apostles applied the message of Jesus to the growing churches, the growing communities 
known as churches, which emerged out of the preaching of the gospel. They're all about Jesus. Go to the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, about his glorification in heaven, his return, the details of the last days before he comes. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus from beginning to end. So if you want to know about Jesus, read the Bible, read the New Testament. Now, a little bit of a digression. During this year, um, I read through the whole of the Quran. <laughs> Not something I recognize, recommend you to do. I have to admit, I skipped out, read speed thread through some parts, which were quite difficult to read. And I thought I ought to justify this little booklet I'd written called uh, The Bible or the Quran. And I wanted to find out what the Quran would tell me about Muhammad. Now, you agree that Muhammad is the main man in Islam, yeah? And the Quran is the main book in, in the Quran. Read through the Quran, and what will you find out about Muhammad? Zero. <laughs> He's mentioned by name four times in the Quran. The word you is used many times in the Quran, but it doesn't actually say that it's Muhammad. In the English version, it puts in brackets Muhammad, but it's not there in the Arabic. And all it says is you are receiving certain information. It's nothing about Muhammad, what he taught, where he lived, where he went, who his friends were, who his enemies were. All that stuff is actually not in the Quran. Nothing about it. It's got a few jumbled up Bible stories, but nothing about Muhammad. Does that surprise you? Uh, what you know about Muhammad, you'll find in what's called the Sirah, uh, which was written about 200 years after he's supposed to have lived in Mecca. There you've got his story about him going into the cave and receiving the stuff from uh, the angel Jibreel, who's Gabriel, and he couldn't read and write, but he recited it and learnt it all by heart. Then you have also the story about him going to Mecca and uh, being rejected and leaving Mecca and going to Medina and then going back to Mecca. Now, you'd expect to find that in the Quran, wouldn't you? But there's not a word about it in the Quran. And the Sirah was written probably about 200 years after Muhammad was supposed to have lived. You've also got a collection of his sayings, which you find in what's called the Hadith, which are also written probably 200 to 300 years after Muhammad was supposed to have lived. Not by eyewitnesses, not by Muhammad himself, and collections of writings written sometime afterwards. Also, if you look in the New Testament, you'll find there is abundant historical, geographical customs of the time are all accurate according to uh, what is written in the Bible. You'll find evidence of where Jesus lived, where he went, uh, who his friends were again, and who his enemies were. You have a historical setting in relation to the Roman Empire, in relation to the Jewish life at the time. The customs of Jesus, customs of the time are all there in the New Testament. Do you find any of that in the Quran? Nothing. Not even any evidence that Mecca actually existed as a town at the time. So you have a huge difference between the New Testament and the Quran. If you want to know a bit more about this, read my little booklet, which we've got some tables on, to, uh, some on the table. But coming back to the New Testament, to what we've read in Matthew. said, so Matthew tells you about Jesus. And he begins with a genealogy. Most times we skip through the gene genealogy, and probably I was tempted to skip through it because you have to leave a lot of names, which is quite hard to read. But it's actually important that the genealogies are there. They're there for a purpose. Uh, some people have looked at Matthew's Gospel and the genealogy in Luke and said, well, those two genealogies are different, so they must have got it wrong. Uh, now, if you think about it logically, every one of us has two genealogies, if you like, two sets of parents and two people who go back to them and their ancestors. So it's not surprising that there are differences between the two genealogies. And there's evidence that Luke's genealogy is actually the genealogy of Mary. 
Uh, quite a complicated subject. I won't go into that in detail, but take my word for it. There's evidence that Luke, what is in Luke is the genealogy of Mary, Miriam. What you have in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph. Uh, and also, of course, Matthew tells you the story from Joseph's point of view. So you have in Matthew the story from Joseph's point of view. In Luke, you have the story of the birth of Jesus from Mary's point of view. So a significance there. Uh, also, in <coughs> Matthew's Gospel, as I've said, it gives, goes it very much back to the uh, Jewishness of Jesus, to his descendants from Abraham. So it's interesting that Matthew's Gospel genealogy begins with Abraham, goes through David, then through the kings of Judah. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, it goes back to Adam. Uh, and Adam, of course, the first man. Matthew's Gospel very much giving you the story from a Jewish point of view. Luke's Gospel giving you the story very much from a general human point of view, going back to the first man and showing Jesus as the archetypal man who has come to redeem us. You don't have genealogies in other Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, you do have the prologue of John, which goes back to Jesus being the Son of God, being the Word made flesh. And the theme of John's Gospel actually to show you the divinity of Jesus. His origins are in heaven, not just as a human, but he is the Son of God come from heaven. So in Matthew's Gospel, come back to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel shows you the descent of Jesus from the royal line, descended from David via the kings of Judah. You notice that after David, you have Solomon. And after Solomon, if you recognize some of those names, they will, you will recognize them as kings of Judah, who followed in the line of David, and were legitimate kings from God's point of view who sat on David's throne. Comes to an end with a man called Jeconiah. Uh, Jeconiah was actually the last king of the line of David to sit on the throne of David. And you'll find that in the Bible it tells that after him the Babylonians came and took away Jerusalem and took away the Jews to Jerusalem, uh, to Babylon, and made an end to the line of the kings of David. And there's a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah which says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. That applies to Jeconiah. So the prophecy actually says that Jeconiah is going to be the last king of Judah on the, of the line of David. Now one of his descendants, Zerubbabel, was a ruler after the return from Babylon. His, he's also in that list of names, if you notice, notice there. But he wasn't a king. And some have said that if Jesus was descended solely from David through the line of kings, through Jeconiah, his claim to be the king of Judah and to sit on David's throne would be annulled because no descendant of Jeconiah is going to sit on David's throne. Now, Joseph was descended from Jeconiah, from, from David through Jeconiah. question is, was Joseph actually Jesus' literal human father? No, he was Jesus' stepfather. Jesus was still the firstborn, so he became the legitimate heir, if you like, the firstborn of Joseph, but he wasn't actually descended personally from, King, from Joseph. I've said in Luke's Gospel, you have a different line coming through Mary, and it comes via a person called Nathan, who was the son of, J of David. They were not kings, so they weren't disqualified. So coming through David, through David via Nathan, via Mary... Jesus still then has the right to sit on David's throne. 
So Jesus can legitimately be the son of David and sit on the throne of David, according to Bible prophecy. Now, Jesus did have a physical connection to Mary. And, of course, we read that in Luke's Gospel, in the account in Luke of the conception of Jesus. So let's have a look at that in Luke chapter 2, verse 26, which tells us how Jesus came through the body of Mary. So in one literal sense, Mary was the mother of Jesus. It's an issue about whether she was just in the womb of Mary, but there was a physical connection to Mary as the mother of Jesus. And we read in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favoured one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the highest will overshadow you, therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. With God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The miraculous conception of Jesus. And actually, the miracle was not the birth. The birth was actually a normal birth. The miracle was the conception of Jesus. He was conceived without a human father by the Holy Spirit implanting the seed in the womb of Mary to become the Son of God and Son of Man. Uh, some of you know I'm not convinced that Jesus was born on December the 25th. In fact, I'm fairly convinced he wasn't. I've actually written a little booklet which is on the table there. When was Jesus born? But I have worked out by fairly long stream, which I won't try to explain to you now, but you can read it in my booklet, that the most likely time for the conception of Jesus was around mid-December. So if you want to celebrate Christmas, you can celebrate the conception rather than the birth of Jesus. But anyway, he was conceived miraculously, supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Here was Miriam, Mary, who was a godly young woman, a virgin, betrothed to her husband, to her to-be husband, Joseph, but not yet married and not yet had any sexual intercourse, in order which she could become pregnant. So this conception was miraculous, and the son was placed in her womb by the Holy Spirit. Was a real human being, be born as son of man, born in the way which you and I are born, with a human body, to be son of man, but also he was not a normal human being, he was unique in being the son of God. And in this passage, it says that the angel said to her, He'll be great, he'll be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And he'll be called the son of God. 
So you have those characteristics which are going to be given to him. He's going to have an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal house. This is actually also a fulfillment of another passage in the Old Testament in Hebrew Scriptures, which you'll find in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, where King David is visited by the prophet Nathan, and Nathan tells David that he's going to have a line of descendants uh, after him who will sit upon his throne. And in 1 Chronicles 17, it says in verse 11, it should be when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will be one of yours, your sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house. I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. I will not take away my mercy from him as I took it from him who was before you. I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Now here's a remarkable word which is given to King David. He's being told he's going to have a son who's going to sit on his throne. Okay, that was Solomon. And out of Solomon's going to come a line of kings who are going to go on for several generations. And this was a great privilege which God was giving to David because of the fact that God has chosen David to be the king and David was a man after God's own heart. But there's a logical fallacy, a logical problem in this. How can a mortal king have an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom? Obviously, any king who comes, any person actually comes after you is going to inherit from you the mortal nature, and one day is going to die. So no king is going to have an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. And actually Solomon was aware of this when he wrote in Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 18, I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he be a wise man or a fool, yet he will reign rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Otherwise he says, I can have a son, but he might not be a good king and he might actually spoil everything which I've done. So every human has this problem. But it says here that this one who's come after the line of David is going to have an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. Now, if you think about it logically, the only person who can have an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne is a person who has an eternal nature. So he must be speaking here about someone who's going to come after him who, who will be a descendant of his, but who will also be more than just a human, will be son of God which applies to Jesus, of course. That's what we've read here in the previous passage in Luke's Gospel. The angel says to Miriam that your descendant is going to have an eternal... He's going to give him the throne of his father, David, reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. That applies to Jesus. Jesus has an eternal house, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom because he's an eternal person. And having died for our sins and risen from the dead, he has ascended to heaven... I believe he's going to come back again and sit on David's throne when he comes the second time. That's in the millennial kingdom. But it's all only fulfillable, only possible to be fulfilled by someone who has an eternal nature. <clears throat> so let's come back to the birth story as recorded in the book of Matthew. When we come back to Matthew, there is a little problem in this whole arrangement. Miriam, his girl he's betrothed to, has become pregnant. How is he going to react to this? 
Now, of course, Mary was not yet married when she'd not yet had sexual relations with anyone, Joseph in particular. She was still a virgin, and she'd remain a virgin until the birth of Jesus. So I've said what was miraculous was not actually the birth, it was the conception. And it says in verse 18, uh, so not in verse 18, in... Yeah, in verse 18, it says, After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, put yourself in Joseph's position. You find out that the girl you're about to, you're betrothed to, but you've not yet married to, uh, is pregnant. What do you think? Oh, dear. Something's gone badly wrong here. And... The only conclusion you can come to in the natural form is that she has been unfaithful and she's had a relationship with a man and has become pregnant. In which case, it's over. <laughs> He's not going to marry her. He's going to put her away. And it says that Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public <coughs> example, was minded to put her away secretly. So he wasn't going to humiliate her. He wasn't going to make a public example of her, which he could have done and in which case she could have been in serious trouble, uh, and he was going to put her away privily, secretly. So he was going to break the arrangement. Now, you have to understand something about betrothal. I guess we would compare betrothal with engagement in our culture. But in the Jewish culture, it was much more than just engagement. Uh, if you were betrothed in that culture, it was much more binding than an engagement is in our culture. You had to draw up what was called a ketubah, a writing which was a legal document in which you were committed to marriage after a period of engagement, usually about a year. Uh, this arrangement could only be broken by another legal document called a get or a divorce. And what Joseph was planning to do was to give her a legal document in which would, she would be divorced and then would be separated from him. And he was going to do the decent thing, not expose her, to shame, but go, not go through with the marriage. Now, in this case, Jesus and Mary would be in trouble. She'd be a single mother. He would be an illegitimate child. be trouble. Interestingly, in the Quran, there is also a story about Jesus being born to a virgin. In the Quran, there's no Joseph. Uh, Jesus is born uh, to a Miriam, who is Mariam, who's a virgin. And she's about to be stoned to death because of her infidelity, and the child Jesus speaks to openly just as he's been born and says, don't do that because this is from Allah. And so that's the story in, in the Quran. Totally wrong. But it tells you something about the situation, actually, that Mary would have been in trouble had she been a single mother bringing forth a child. So God has to intervene. Uh, it's important that most Joseph marries, goes through with the marriage and looks after baby Jesus. Interestingly, if you think about it, if God is going to bring the child into the, the world in this way, first of all, he can't bring it through a married woman because she wouldn't be a virgin. Secondly, he can't bring it through a woman who is not betrothed because then she would be left in this situation without having a husband to look after her. So he has to do it. God has to bring it to a woman who is already betrothed but not yet married. What happened with the case of Mary? So God intervenes and tells Joseph what has happened. 
tells him that God's behind all this. Don't worry, Joseph. She hasn't been unfaithful to you. In fact, she's been very faithful, faithful to God. She's received what God has given to you, given to her. And the child that she's bearing is a very special child. It's not just any old baby. This is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Mary is playing her part. She's already said, let it be done to me according to your will in Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 1. So Mary is playing her part. Now, Joseph, you've got to play your part. And verse 20, he says, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of Mary, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she'll bring forth a son, you'll call his name Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he's telling her, Joseph, that he has to go through with the marriage. He has to be, Mary's been faithful, nothing to worry about on that score, but he has been entrusted with the unique gift of God in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And he's got to play his part now to look after Mary and to look after the baby who's to be born. <clears throat> and he says, you'll call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew, of course, is Yeshua. Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, salvation. So as with many names in the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that the name actually gives you the characteristic or the, the role of the person whose name is given to. And the role of Jesus, Yeshua, is to bring salvation to his people. He will save his people from their sins. If you and I have been saved from our sins, it's because of our faith in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And he goes on to say that this is connected, this is done, in verse 22, this shall be done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. <clears throat> in other words, not only is this a miracle in which the Holy Spirit has intervened, this is a miracle which is a fulfillment of a prophecy given some 700 years previously to the prophet Isaiah in chapter, 14, chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah. <clears throat> so let's just have a little look at that prophecy in the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord God, the Lord your God. <coughs> ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary me? But will you weary my God also? <coughs> Therefore, the Lord your God, Lord himself, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall give, conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Virgin, the word which is used in Hebrew there is Alma. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. In the Greek translation of the Septuagint is translated as the word Parthenos. I'll say a bit more about that as well. <clears throat> Put this in the, in the context of what is given. In the situation in Isaiah chapter 7, you have a king of Judah called Ahaz. He's one of the worst of the kings of Judah. He's a legitimate king after the line of David, but he's also a very bad king who sacrifices his sons to idols, who uh, practices all kinds of idolatry and wickedness against the Lord, and is basically an unbeliever 
in the God of Israel. At the time when Isaiah goes to see him, he's facing a threat from the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the kingdom had divided between Judah and Israel by this time, and an alliance between Israel and Syria. And the two kings of Israel and Syria were planning to come against Ahaz and to replace him with a king of their own choice, a man called Tabel. Uh, this would interfere with God's plan because God's plan was that there should be the line of David, which would be in place and would lead up to the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> Isaiah comes and tells him that this is not going to happen. These two kings you're afraid of are actually going to be defeated themselves, so you don't need to fear, fear for them because you are going to stay as king of Judah. <clears throat> Ahaz is an unbeliever, so he doesn't really take what Isaiah is telling to him. And also Ahaz at the same time is making an alliance himself with Assyria, which is to the north of Syria, modern territory of the north part of Iraq, and which is the rising empire which is rising up in the north of, to the north of Syria. And Ahaz is saying, I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria to defend me against Syria and against Judah. Not a good idea because Assyria is going to become much more of a threat to both Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel in the days to come. <clears throat> and Isaiah tells him, don't do this, trust in God. And he says that he's going to give him a sign. Ask a sign, I'll give it to you. At which point Ahaz gets religious and says, I won't ask for a sign because that's against the Torah. He's actually saying that because basically he doesn't want to hear from God. He wants to trust in his own thing. So Isaiah says, here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? Will you weary my God also? In other words, God is getting pretty fed up with him. Interesting also that up to this point in the prophecy of Isaiah, he's speaking you in the singular. Now he speaks to you in the plural, speaking to the whole house of David. He's saying actually that you, house of David, have been a disappointment to me because you haven't followed in the ways of David, you've followed in the ways of idols, and you're heading for trouble because of this. But I'm going to give you something which will be a sign, a sign which will be the sign of the virgin or the Alma who will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you look in some translations of the Bible, they put here, the young woman will bear a son. If you talk to Jewish people who are opposed to the gospel, they would cite this verse and say, you Christians have got it wrong, you shouldn't translate this virgin, you should translate it young woman. Do they have something there? Yes and no. Uh, the word Alma does not exclusively mean virgin. There's another word in Hebrew called Parthenos, which is generally used for a virgin. No, not Parthenos, Betula. Betula is the Hebrew word used for virgin. Alma means a young woman of marriageable age who is not yet married. Now, think about it. A young woman of marriageable age. So she's sexually mature, able to have a child, but she's not yet married. In the culture of that time, would you expect her to become pregnant? No, because that would be going against the culture. So do you expect a young woman of that age not to be uh, pregnant? In fact, uh, it's interesting that in the German language, the word for virgin is Jungfrau, which means young woman. Now, it says here that this is going to be a sign, oat. Uh, a sign, a word used in Hebrew is oat, which means a sign, which means a miracle, something which only God can do. 
So you have to ask yourself a question, would God do a miracle which involves a young woman who shouldn't get pregnant becoming pregnant? In other words, sexual immorality. Obviously he wouldn't. If it's going to be a sign from God, it has to be something supernatural. Also, one has to say that young women become pregnant in every generation, and it's not much of a sign, it's not much something out of the ordinary. What he's saying here is that this is going to be something which will be a sign out of the ordinary. And he's looking forward here not to something which just applies to Ahaz, he's looking forward to something which applies to the whole house of David. And it's going to come way in the future in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, who will be born supernaturally to a virgin. In the following verses, he goes back to Ahaz's situation, gives him a word that the two kings he's afraid of from the north uh, will be unable to carry their plan, but Assyria will come and invade him, and he's the one who he needs to be afraid of. Ahaz dies, and he's followed by his son Hezekiah, who's a good king, who trusts in the Lord, and when the Assyrians come down, he prays to God through Isaiah, and the Assyrians are defeated supernaturally. It's another whole story. But God rescues Judah so that they will remain a nation. He rescues the line of David because it's important that the line of David continues until the coming of the Messiah. All this is important for the coming of the Messiah, Yeshua. In fact, if the Assyrians had come down and taken Judah back into captivity, then Judah would have ceased to be a nation and Jesus would not have been able to come because they destroyed their identity. So it's important that they stay there. Now, coming back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, this is going to come to pass. The Messiah is going to come. And what the Holy Spirit, is, what God is telling Joseph at this time is that you, Joseph, fairly obscure man living in an obscure place in the north of Judea or Galilee, and your betrothed wife, uh, Miriam, are the ones who are going to bring this to pass. In fact, you have this immense privilege. Imagine. Uh, they're the ones who are going to bring forth the Messiah. And you have to play your part. Mary has to play her part. You're going to set in motion the enormous purpose of God for the redemption of humanity through the coming of Jesus the Messiah, our Savior and Lord. Purpose set in motion from the time of the beginning, even from the time of the fall. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, first messianic prophecy, <coughs> when the Lord speaks to the serpent who is behind the serpent is Satan, and speaks of the seed of the woman who's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Prophecy which is accepted by Jews and Christians as referring to the coming of the Messiah, and that the Messiah is somehow going to break the power of the evil one of Satan and bruise his head, in other words, afflict him with a mortal blow while being suffering himself in the process. He shall bruise your heel. And it speaks of the seed of the woman, seed of the woman who bruised the head of the serpent. And down through history, people have wondered who's going to be the woman, the woman. This is not any old woman. This is the special woman who's going to bring forth the birth of the Messiah. And now in these chapters, in, in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 1, God is revealing who the woman is. The woman is Miriam. Again, it's so like God. He doesn't take some famous, wonderful woman living in a palace. He takes a humble woman living in the backwoods of Galilee in Nazareth and takes her to be the one who's going to bring forth the Messiah. Just like he takes people like you and me, who are, uh, in one sense, 
no significance in the eyes of the world to bring forth the knowledge of the Messiah and to share his message in the world today. And it's up to Joseph also to play his part. Mary said she's going to play her part. Is Joseph going to play his part? Is he going to care for Mary, not put her away? Care for the baby who's the most precious gift of God for lost humanity? And he does it. He does it magnificently. He takes care of Mary. He looks after Mary and Jesus. And he acts as the foster father, if you like, to Jesus. And Jesus is born then into a normal family uh, with a father, mother, and also with brothers and sisters. Notice the last verse in Matthew chapter 1. And Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn and he called his name Jesus. Did not know her is a polite way in Bible terms of saying did not have sexual relations with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, Jesus. So up until the time of the birth of Jesus, Miriam, Mary was a virgin. The implication is that after the birth of Jesus, uh, she had children in the normal way, as Joseph and Mary had normal relationships and brought forth children of their own. Other children, which is confirmed in the 13th chapter of Matthew, which tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Matthew 13, verse 56 says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence has this man all these things? If you work that out, Jesus has at least six brothers and sisters. Four brothers and sisters. Doesn't tell you how many. Could be at least two, but there could be more. So Jesus is born into quite a large family. He lived in a normal Jewish family with two parents and several brothers and sisters. As to his humanity, therefore, he was normal. But the manner of his conception and his birth were unique. He was born by the power of the Holy Spirit who came upon Miriam and gave birth to the son, the unique son, Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, who'd be both son of man and son of God. Not a normal son. I often wonder whether Mary noticed the difference between her firstborn son, who was born without a sin nature, and the others who came along afterwards, who were born in the normal way. And I should just mention that that was the, another reason why Jesus had to be born in this supernatural way, because he had to be without sin in order that he might bear the sin of the world. Every one of us, you and I, have a sin nature which we inherit from our first parents, right down to our natural parents, and each one of us inherits that sin nature from which we need to be redeemed through the person of Jesus Christ. And he himself is the only one who is without sin. And he is the one who has redeemed us through the light of being the saviour of the world. And we see in the accounts of the birth of Jesus that both Mary and Joseph played their part in bringing this unique child, the saviour of the world, into the world. And now we're called also to bear the light of Yeshua, of Jesus the Messiah, into the darkness of this present world. He calls us to be subject to him as we accept the salvation he's offering us. And he reminds us that as he said to Joseph, as the angel said to Joseph, you should call his name Jesus, Yeshua, salvation, for he will save his people from their sins.
Have you been saved from your sins? Have you put your trust in Jesus? That's the question which we ask. If you know you have, praise God. Share this message with others. Pass it on so that others too may know the salvation which we have in Jesus Christ, who is the one way to God, the one way, one person who has redeemed us through his precious blood, one one person who has lived a perfect life without sin and has laid down his life as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. So praise God, give thanks to the Lord, and trust in him, and be those who, like Joseph and Mary, will bear the saviour of the world and spread his message in the world today, because it's the only message which can give any hope to our people in this present dark world. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, and you shall be saved. Amen.